Hi, I'm Rick Tittle, and this is the Rick Tittle Podcast on the 8Side Network. Join me as I get busy with the biggest names in sports and entertainment. Thank you for that, and welcome back to the show. Rick Tittle with you, coast to coast and around the world on the American Forces Radio Network. It's our pleasure to welcome to the show author Rick Prado. He has a brand new book called Black Ops, The Life of a CIA Shadow Warrior. And uh, Rick, welcome to the show. And um, uh, a quarter century with the Central Intelligence Agency, as you have served and decorated as well. But uh, when you were a kid in Cuba, when you were Enrique Prado, uh, you saw bullets flying when you were really young, didn't you? Well, first, thank you for having me, Rick, and, and uh, appreciate the support on this. Yeah, I, I am a, um, I'm a child of the uh, Cuban Revolution Depression. Um, I was seven when the rebels uh, started attacking my town uh, where I lived in, and my dad had his business. And literally when I was seven years old, uh, I heard a firefight. I went outside, uh, or I went up to the window, and I didn't notice there was a guy below me. Uh, all of a sudden he had an automatic weapon, and he let loose. And uh, so that, that happened two or three times. Uh, shortly thereafter, when Castro took over, the oppressions began. And I remember the first time we went to Havana with my mom and dad, that I literally saw... You know, I'm, 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 by the time the revolution came in, I was eight. Uh, I saw people hanging from trees Jeez. with signs that said "contra-revolutionaries." So the uh, the persecutions were real, the interrogations were real. Uh, so that was that was my uh, initiation into hating communism. Wow. So uh, fast forward, you get to the United States, and now. Uh, what brought you towards the CIA? How did that all start out? You know, uh, Rick, I'm a firm believer that, that we all have a path to take, um, that is a God-given path, and, and uh, if you have the courage to, to walk it, uh, you will have a, you'll have a wonderful life. Um, I think that those early years in, in, in Cuba um, impacted me. Uh, subsequently, my dad put me on an airplane by myself, to come to the United States through a program called Peter Pan. And I ended up at, uh, at a uh, Catholic orphanage in Pueblo, Colorado, uh, turned 11 there. Mm. And, that was, again, that was a place that where discipline was harsh and so were the fights. Um, four or five different ethnics and, and, and uh, ethnicities there, and it was uh, quite, quite an eight months for, for an 11-year-old. So I, the, the point is I was steeled to some kind of adventures to kind of being confident, having been able to have you to survive. Um, but I didn't find that purpose until uh, much later on. Uh, I was kind of a little rogue growing up, good grades in high school, but always getting in trouble for fighting and, and stuff like that. And, and uh, there was an incident where uh, my first semester of college, the, uh, the hippies were going to burn down the American flag. This was 1970, late 70, early 71. And I said, the hell they are. So I called a couple of my buddies and six of us. There was 20 hippies the next day. Uh, it was not a fair fight for them. And at the end, when I saw the beads on the floor and the T-torn T-shirts, I look up and that American flag was waving. And it was the first time in my life that I had done any kind of adventurism or, or fighting or anything else that I was proud of myself. 
Uh, six months later, I joined uh, Air Force Pararescue, which is one of the elite units in, uh, in, uh, of our Special Operations uh, Forces. Um, I did that in um, late 1971. Uh, I subsequently volunteered for the agency a couple of times, and, and eventually when the uh, uh, Sandinistas took over Nicaragua and Reagan decided to uh, have the Pontra program, which was a covert action, uh, that was that was when I got called in for the long term, and that was that's how I got into the agency. I, I will tell you, I think it's, it's it's a blessing. I never, in all my years of working, have I gotten up in the morning and go, "Oh man, I have to go to work today." That was never the case. So I, I just believe that you know it was uh, part of it was the genetic, part of it was the experiences, and that steal the metal that allowed me to do that kind of work. No, it's fascinating. I'm sure you have a million stories. So with the book, Black Ops, The Life of a CIA Shadow Warrior, uh, obviously you're not going to give away, uh, you know, secrets or anything, but but how much did you have to hold back, or, or did you have to hold back? Well, you know, that's an excellent point, Rick, but my book is 100% cleared by the CIA. Um, it took them six months of back and forth with me, um, I told them from the very beginning that the purpose of, of me writing the book wasn't to tell my story in that sense. The purpose of writing the book is because I have lost friends, colleagues, that are one of 137 stars that we have in the wall at CIA that is mostly people that is, they're anonymous. And those people deserve a better reputation than what Hollywood portrays. The average American sees the CIA as a bunch of rogue, immoral, treacherous, maniacal assassins that sell drugs and stab each other in the back, and nothing could be further from the truth. So that was the impetus for me writing the book. And I think that they took that on board because they allowed me to say a lot of things. Now, there's, there's two countries that I give all, all the details of what I did, but I cannot mention the country. Uh, some people have guessed at it. I'm never, I'm never going to confirm or, or, or deny that. Um, there were some things that they took out. Uh, obviously, and, and there were some things that I put in that I didn't want <laughs> out there either uh, with, with the agency. So uh, you will definitely see in that book, you will experience real CIA sexy operations carried out by real CIA operations officers. Not Jason Bourne, not even my childhood hero, James Bond. I'm, <laughs> by the way, I'm still waiting for my Austin Martin. Um, None of that. Uh, it is, uh, there's, there's stories about colleagues, male, female. I have two great stories of females in there that, that, that I have nothing but admiration for. So that, that's, that's what's in the book. It's, it's a pretty good ride. Great stuff from Rick Prado. And um, I could just say, you know, real quick, I remember that Warren Beatty movie, The Parallax View. They were trying, CIA was trying to find assassins, and they wanted to see that you were insane first, right? You remember that? <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, you know, it, it's funny because there's uh, there's a lot of uh, movies out there, including the Bond movies, where the uh, the, the, the protagonist is, is was an orphan because you know, so it, for the same reason, they tell that to James Bond that you know they he was hired because or, or orphans are, are are very valuable for uh, for this kind of work. So, yeah. All right, I want to make sure everybody picks it up. Once again, it's called Black Ops, The Life of a CAA Shadow Warrior from Rick Prado, uh, who, of course, uh, decorated with the Distinguished Queer Intelligence Medal, the George Bush Award for Excellence in Counter 
uh, terrorism and also hitting up the, uh, the the bin Laden hunt. I mean, it's just uh, we could I could interview you all day, Rick. Congratulations on the book and uh, thanks for thanks for being on that wall for us. Thank you, sir. All righty. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. You're listening to the Rick Tittle podcast on the Eight Side Network. Stay tuned for more. Hey, thank you for that, and welcome back to the show. Rick Tittle with you coast to coast and around the world on the American Forces Radio Network. Um, There is a uh, documentary streaming on uh, Discovery Plus called King of the Con, and uh, it offers a look into the debaucherous, swindling life and inconceivable scams of a professional con man named Barry Minkow, and uh, it's a three-part series, as I mentioned. It uh, uh, began on the 14th of this month on Discovery+, Plus. and uh, we have the king of the con uh, right now, Barry Minkow, with us. And, Barry, welcome to the program. W- what's it like when it's a documentary about you and it's uh, putting all your dirty laundry in f- on national TV? I mean, what is that like? to be on the broadcast. Thanks so much for having me. A real privilege. Appreciate it very much. And um, they came to me to do this, Rick. Uh, I was, uh, you know, uh, managing a, an emergency homeless shelter and a couple production companies said, you know something, it's time to get your story out there to do two things. One, to encourage people that have failed repeatedly in and out of prison, drug addiction, you know, violated positions of trust, lie to get money. Those kind of people need hope. You've got your family back. You're uncovering fraud. You just need to Google to see that. And you got your life back. And if you could do that based on all that you've been through and done, you can give hope. And then secondarily, Rick, it was to provide people with a cautionary tale of if you lie to get money, that path has one ultimate destination, federal prison. So I did 15 years, so you don't have to. That's the goal. Goodness gracious. Was that your original sentence, or was that shortened for good behavior? No, I got, I was under the, in the ZBES case, right, Rick? Uh, great question, by the way. I was under the old law, which was pre-November 87, uh, do 85%. It was the parole system. You, know, you did a third. I got 25 years because I refused to testify against the mob. So I was the lead guy. Nobody from organized crime who I was involved with ever went to prison. So I got 25 years under the old law. My judge wrote a letter to the parole board, Judge Trevisian, asking for my release uh, about seven years, six months later. So I did about a third. And and 16 years later, I reoffended. But in the federal system, if, Rick, if you're out 15 years, you're clear. So when I went in front of the judge in Miami for insider trading on Lennar, she looks at me and says, Mr. Minko, the law says you're a first-time better. I know you're not. So it, it, there was no fooling her. But the uh, uh, second sentence uh, between the insider trading case and the tax fraud um, uh, and embezzlement and commingling funds with the church, that was 10 years. But I did, what, 85% of that, less the RDAP program. So I did about 15 years. Um, some of us are slow learners. And I did a lot of time with people, repeat offenders. And when I talk to people now who are in addiction or who have failed, I'm like, look, I betrayed God, so you may have done some bad things. You didn't do Barry Minko bad. So if I could get my family back and uncover fraud like my judge asked me to do 10 years ago and, uh, and get my life back, how much more can you when you haven't done half the evil I have? So I really want to encourage people to have failed. That was one of the reasons for doing 
the docuseries. And the other, of course, as I said, was uh, to, as a cautionary tale, do not do what I did. Don't lie to get money. Don't betray positions of trust. And here's what's going to happen. And you know what, Rick? Here's the interesting thing. The most painful part of prison is it's where you aren't, not where you are. I got along fine in prison. I was blessed to have some very good friends and people who rallied around me, staff. I went through a great drug program. I have, I've been clean and sober from OxyContin for 11-plus years. I'm grateful. The federal system worked with me. I got So any, anything you see or hear on the docuseries where somebody's saying something evil, uh, you always got to remember, that's why he got 15 years. Not like the financial crisis where a lot of people didn't get any years. I got hammered. The, the, judge, uh, the, the justice system worked brilliantly in my case. Uh, they got the right guy twice. I did a ton of time. And the real pain, Rick, was coming home. Looking at the pain, uh, my narcissistic, selfish behavior, the toll it took on my wife and boys and friends and family, and, and, and it's, just, it, it's, it's almost as painful out, and of course you'd rather be out than in, but when you're in, you don't realize the devastating consequences. And that's what I want to prevent people from ever having to go through. I did the 15 years. You don't have to. Don't follow in my footsteps. Well, there's always redemption. Uh, you know, I think about as a Catholic in school, we studied St. Augustine, who was a, a pimp. He went from a pimp to a saint. So I can understand that. But And I can understand, um, you know, someone in your love life taking you back because love is blind and and maybe you can charm them. But how do you get businesses to believe that you are a changed man? So it was the first fraud we uncovered upon my release from prison. A reporter said, you know something? I read that the SEC wrote a letter to your judge. It's a public record, Rick, that you uncovered 11 frauds and over a billion dollars. And then she said to you, you obviously have a gift to do this. Just stay away from shorting, stay away from public companies, and when you get out, Mr. Minko, uh, do a public service and uncover financial fraud. Well, Google Barry Minko, and you'll see Prestige Equity, Harbor City Capital. You'll see the cases that we have already submitted to the SEC that have been shut down, and there's six more coming. So I just followed what the judge says. So uh, that's one thing. The other thing is I'm really not trying to – I don't hold a position of trust, Rick. That's a a wise decision, another uh, recommended by my judge – you know, stay away from situations. I don't, I'm not the president of a bank or a pastor of a church or a leader of a hedge fund. So I'm not asking anybody to trust me. What I am doing is saying I have a certain niche for people who lie to get money, who are repeat offenders, who struggle with addiction, who, um, uh, you know, have been cast off by society. Those are the people I really want to reach and care what they think. For people who are just great people and never have any problems, God bless you. Uh, but I don't connect with them, and I certainly don't hold any positions of trust where I'm asking them to believe me. And by the way, your Augustine quote was great, because obviously the prostitute came to him and said, hey, it is I, it is I, it is I, don't you remember? And he looked at her and said, yeah, but it's no longer I, after he became a believer. Great quote, uh, Rick. I love that story of St. Augustine's transformation. And I do believe, like you, everybody's story uh, has a redemptive uh, uh, possibility and purpose, no matter what you've done. So I don't care what society says. You can't listen to the haters, the naysayers. Rick, that's why I did 15 years. I'll put that up against a lot of people who may have, you know, looted and burned and never got indicted or financial crisis. They got me. I, it worked. I did my time. And that's why I got a lot of time, because of the people that I did hurt. When you get out is when the real challenge is winning my twin boys back. 
working out with them every morning, loving them, being there for them, schlepping them to rides, helping them with school. That's the real test, and that's what I'm, I love most, going to church with them every week. So it was winning the boys back. And Lisa, my wife, no dummy. I had an affair with my assistant, much to my shame. She filed for divorce, and it took a lot to a lot of years to uh, win her back. She was uh, she, She's in the docuseries, and I think she speaks to the possibility, Rick, of hope, no matter what has happened in your marriage or, you know, because there's, you know, we're not alone in, in, in people who have uh, going through difficult times. But I think her story is if somebody's repented, paid a huge price for what they've done, turned from the behavior, you know what? I'm going to tell you something. Forgiveness doesn't change the world. Forgivers change the world. And I am so grateful for those who have forgiven me. And you would be shocked. Uh, everyone from Franklin Graham uh, to the founding pastor of the church that hired me, I am just blessed and grateful for those people who have chosen to forgive. Just about 30 seconds left. How much do you have to work at it every day? Because even when you were a teenager, you figured out how to do Ponzi schemes and how to fleece people out of their cash. So how much do you have to work at it every day when you look and you think, man, I could make a killing on this and no one would ever find out? <laughs> you know what, with these NFTs and Barry Minko, you can check out the three-part documentary streaming on Discovery Plus called King of the Con, and you know that uh, this is an interesting guy when his title is pastor slash felon. Hey, Barry, great stuff, man. Thanks for dropping by. Rick, you're a good man. Thank you so much for having me, sir. Anytime. You're listening to the Rick Tittle Podcast on the 8Side Network. Stay tuned for more. Thank you for that. Welcome back to the show. Rick Tittle with you coast to coast and around the world on American Forces Radio Network. It's our pleasure to be joining the show now by one of the top defense attorneys in the nation. It is David S. Rudolph, and he is now an author of the book called American Injustice, Inside Stories from the Underbelly of the Criminal Justice System. This is available hardback from Custom House Publishing. David, welcome to the show. And first of all, as someone who teaches law at both Chapel Hill and Duke. Who do you root for when they play each other in basketball? Uh, there is, there is. Ab- First of all, thank you for having me on, and thank you for asking that question because I am Tar Heel born and Tar Heel bred, and when I die, you know what I'll be. So uh, <laughs> uh, there, there's no doubt about that. So you're walking down the street, Coach Cam, one side, Dean Smith on the other. We know where you're going. Uh, even Roy Williams, <laughs> even the <laughs> likes of Roy Williams. Huh? So, exactly. so how does a kid from the Carolinas end up as a defense attorney in the Bronx? Well, actually, uh, I, I lied a little bit because I wasn't born here in, in North Carolina. I was born in New York, but mm-hmm. you know, I've been down here since, uh, 1978. So I think that sort of, uh, classifies me as a native at this point. Uh, but yeah, so uh, I, I, I was up in New York and I came down to teach at the University of North Carolina Law School in 1978. 
uh, and uh, I never left. Never left North Carolina anyway. Well, uh, when we talk about this book, it uh, focuses on the innocent Americans who have been incarcerated, and uh, we know that a lot of them, especially with new DNA and other evidence, have been uh, released, but we're talking about literally thousands and thousands of years that have been unduly uh, served. So when you approach this topic, uh, how did you attack it? Is it a problem with uh, prosecutors, defendants, our legal system, the the trial itself, police? What, what are we looking at? Uh, all, all of the above, including defense lawyers, for that matter. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, the, the problem is that it's a human system. Uh, and uh, and the problem is that we all have frailties. We all have our uh, issues. Uh, and one of the issues that we all share is something called confirmation bias. Uh, you know, a confirmation bias basically means that when you come to a theory about something, you sort of, and this is true of everybody, you ignore the facts that are inconsistent with your theory or minimize them, and you emphasize and focus on the facts that are consistent with your theory. It's human nature. Uh, The problem is when it happens in a criminal investigation, uh, often the investigation goes awry uh, and the wrong person gets uh, targeted, uh, tunnel vision kicks in, uh, and then uh, the, the innocent person is convicted, and unfortunately the guilty person uh, goes free and oftentimes uh, victimizes other people. What about the whole adage, uh, the the trope that defensive attorney a- attorneys can be uh, inherently evil, and the fact that they know a guy's guilty, but they'll find a loophole. He didn't get his Miranda rights. Ha ha! I put him back on the street. What about that sort of old, uh, you know, stereotype? Well, and, and and it is a stereotype, and it's a false stereotype because he, here's the truth. Uh, m- Ninety-nine percent of the time, when you're representing someone who is guilty, you're looking to enter into a plea bargain. You're mm-hmm. looking to uh, try to put what that person did into context, whether it's the context of the actual act or whether it's the context of that person's entire life, because we don't want to judge anybody by the worst three minutes of their life, by the worst thing they've ever done. Uh, and so our job as defense lawyers is not, quote, to get them off or, you know, do tricks. Uh, our job as a defense lawyer is to try to put our clients' humanity uh, into context and to try to work out an arrangement, a, a punishment that is fair and just and takes into account society's uh, uh, interests and takes into account uh, fairness and, and the defendant's interest and the victim's interest. So, um, you, you know, the, the bottom line is we're not there. You don't take people to trial who you know are guilty uh, unless they're they're sort of out of their minds because uh, the, the, there's a penalty for going to trial. You, you end up doing uh, five or six times as much time as you would if you entered into a plea bargain. So, uh, you know, that's the reality. And, and you know, nobody nobody complains about you know, emergency room doctors treating, uh, you know, mass mass uh, murderers who were shot in the act and they get brought to the hospital. Mm-hmm. You know, nobody says, well, how do you sleep at night? You treated that mass murderer. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's you, he's trying to, to sort of uh, ameliorate the, the damage. And that's what we're doing. Very interesting. Um, 
your face is very recognizable to me. You got a lot of airtime in that uh, staircase on, on Netflix, which was a fascinating uh, documentary, and 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 now it being adapted as a, a series on uh, on HBO Max. So for you, obviously it. It was, uh, you know, a lot of airtime. But uh, how do you manage not to be like drunk with fame? Because you could really, <laughs> I mean, you you got recognized worldwide after that. Well, uh, it's actually pretty easy when you're married to my wife. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, so she. She doesn't view me as a celebrity, unfortunately. <laughs> Before we let you go, and, to... and, and, and certainly my daughter doesn't view me as a celebrity. <laughs> well, that's certainly good. Uh, Abuse of Power, your uh, your podcast. This uh, is uh, an award winning podcast on on criminal justice. Tell us a little bit more about that, because that, as we know, podcasts, especially during the pandemic, they are here to stay. Yeah, and, and I hope your listeners will, will give it a listen. It's on Audible. Uh, and uh, it, it, this season, we're telling the story of a, a murder case from Miami in the late 80s. Uh, it's an amazing case. It has ties to the Medellin uh, cartel and Pablo Escobar. Uh, and the, the notion is that we're trying to tell stories in the podcast, as we are in the book, about how the abuse of power by people in positions of authority in the criminal justice system uh, impacts people. Uh, you know, none of these are about, you know, I'm a great lawyer. Uh, they're about how the abuses really impact ordinary, everyday people. And, and I hope I hope your uh, listeners will read the book and, and give the podcast a listen, because I think I think they're interesting. There he is. I know you got to run David S. Rudolph, his new book, American Injustice, Inside Stories from the Underbelly of the Criminal Justice System, available on uh, Custom House. And we mentioned the podcast, Abuse of Power. David, thanks for coming on and congratulations on the book. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. This has been the Rick Tittle podcast on the Eight Side Network. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer.